Um, now, the book of Ecclesiastes is an interesting one. Um, I think I saw in the poll that most people um, had most people had heard of it, um, at least a little bit. Um, some people had read it, but maybe not for a while. Um, but even if you'd never read it before, uh, you've heard the, you, the impact of Ecclesiastes is kind of continuing um, in our society. For instance, you might have heard some of these idioms. Eat, drink, and be merry. A fly in the ointment. For everything there is a season from dust to dust and nothing new under the sun. Those are idioms you might have heard before that, that, that some people still use, and they all actually find their origin uh, from the book of Ecclesiastes, which uh, is fairly interesting given that it's you know, quite an old book. And, and some of us here may have never really heard much about the book before, but in fact, perhaps you have. Uh, it also has a reputation for being a bit of a, um, a difficult book, um, I like to describe it perhaps as a kind of crazy uncle of the Old Testament. Um, and I say that with all due respect to my uncle, who may well be actually watching right now. Um, but it's that kind of book that um, people, um, you know, it's kind of a bit weird, a little bit strange. It says some stuff that you're like, oh, that's a bit close to the edge. That's a little bit dodgy. Not really sure what's going on there. How does that fit in? So here's some quotes that I've collected um, of, of kind of some of the attitudes that are out there. Um, I saw it called the, the low watermark of God-fearing Jews in pre-Christian times. It's pretty depressing. Um, in fact, the second quote draws on the uh, depressive kind of nature of the book. The teacher's gloomy sub-Christian attitude appears far removed from the piety of the Old Testament. It's terrible hopelessness. It's bold expression of those difficulties with which man is surrounded on every side, the apparent fruitlessness of its quest after good and the unsatisfactory character from a Christian standpoint of its conclusion. It's like, gosh, that person doesn't like this book very much. Um, I also love that last quote there, thoroughly irritating. And it is, it is kind of irritating at points. Now, all that said, um, it kind of has this reputation for being a bit of a strange mysterious book. Uh, but for this term, we're deciding to crack into it together and um, make sense of it. Um, and there's a, there's a lot of sense to be made of it, thankfully. Um, but I wanted to begin tonight um, by actually kind of dropping us in the mess a little bit and um, in the mystery. And so we're actually going to begin with a, a short little breakout session. Um, and so I'm actually going to divide you all up into rooms where you're going to be able to chat uh, briefly with each other. Um, and I'm hoping this is going to work that you can still see the screen because I know a bunch of you don't have the notes. Um, but I've got three passages here that I'd love you to have a quick look at. Um, so if you haven't got the notes, perhaps write these three passages down. Um, and I want you just in your, your breakout groups to have just a three minute discussion on um, these verses, uh, a little bit about perhaps like why it's problematic and, and why it's a bit weird and how they might possibly fit into scripture. Welcome back everyone. I hope you found that a stimulating conversation. Um, and my hope is, is in making you do that is, I guess, just um, whetting your appetite and um, giving you a sense of some of the difficulties, perhaps, um, that we face by looking at this book together. And, and I hope that by the end of tonight's session, um, some of those verses, at least, will be a little bit clearer um, from what we've looked at. Okay, now the book of Ecclesiastes. Um, falls into the category of wisdom literature. Now, if you're not familiar with um, the Bible, like there's, there's genres, text types in the Bible. So you've got some narratives, you've got some poetry, you've got some songs, you've got uh, prophecy. And then a whole category is dedicated to this idea of wisdom literature. And uh, wisdom literature, there's kind of five books that fall into this category. Um, some of them partially, some of them completely. So, for instance, Psalms, they're not all wisdom Psalms, but some of them are. 
Um, but you've got Job, Proverbs, Song of Songs, and Ecclesiastes. Um, these are the wisdom literature books. Um, and some of the characteristics of wisdom literature in the Bible that kind of link them together um, is that they often lack a, a real strong explicit reference to salvation history, um, the salvation history of Israel. Um, and instead, they kind of focus on the order of creation, the things that can be observed and experienced. Um, and they attempt to shed light on our understanding of reality um, and how to live in the world. Um, and each of these kind of do different things. Um, so they're not all banging on, a, you know, playing the same note and banging on about the same thing. They actually kind of complement each other um, rather well. I like the way that J.I. Packer put it. Um, I read somewhere this week um, in his writing, he says that Psalms teaches us how to worship, Proverbs how to behave, Job how to suffer, Song of Songs how to love, and Ecclesiastes how to live. I thought it was a really kind of neat way of describing the different functions that the wisdom literature has. Uh, the three wisdom literature books in particular, though, that we're going to be focusing on tonight and their relationship with each other just a little bit are these three. Um, they're kind of considered the real main um, books in the, in, when it comes to wisdom literature. Um, but uh, what we want to be make sure we're able to do is just think about how they, um, they kind of have a conversation with each other and are connected to each other um, in, a, in a certain sort of way, which we'll come back to in a little bit. Um, yeah, so these three books each have a really interesting take on how life is put together and how we should think about life. Um, what we're going to do now is, seeing as though we're talking about wisdom, is just have a think on your lonesome. I'm not going to chuck you into a breakout room, but just take uh, 90 seconds to ponder on your own or with whoever you might be with um, in your lounge room or whatever. Um, just an answer to that question, what is wisdom? What is wisdom? And then if you'd like, you can actually post a thought in the chat so we can all see um, some of the different answers. How do you answer that? What is wisdom? 90 seconds. Wisdom is actually concerned with uh, navigating the nature of reality. So it's working out how things actually are and then actually letting that shape the way that you live, letting that direct the course of your life, letting that um, flavor your decision-making, right? Working out how things actually are, the reality of the world, and then acting on it, putting it into practice. So it's those two things. It's not just having understanding, but it's also being able to put it into practice. Uh, but it's a complex topic and so there's probably lots of ways there's definitely lots of ways you can kind of get in on the topic of wisdom but it's a, a really important to think about because that's what ecclesiastes is all on about it's all about wisdom trying to crack that nut what is life on about what are we here for how are we you know best meant to live uh, now the first thing i want to say is that we got to go back to Proverbs for a second, because when it comes to the book of Ecclesiastes, um, its biggest conversation partner is the book of Proverbs. Now, the book of Proverbs, um, if you're familiar with that at all, is kind of just full of Proverbs, believe it or not. Basically, uh, wise sayings um, that capture a sense of what our world is like and how to live well in the world. Um, and when it comes to to, to to the conversation that uh, the book of Ecclesiastes is having um, with Proverbs, um, there's some there's some overlap. There's some there's some ways in which the two books really um, support one another and agree with one another. Um, so they're both anchored in the fear of the Lord, um, and and that's really kind of a central tenet to both of them. So I think as as I saw a couple of people answer in the chat, for instance, um, they quoted from Proverbs 1, verse 7, the very start of Proverbs, which says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, the beginning of wisdom. Um, and, and Ecclesiastes agrees with the place of the fear of the Lord, and we'll come to see that uh, a little bit later. Uh, the other thing that um, where they both agree is that wisdom is good. 
So um, there, there are some critical things that Ecclesiastes has to say about the nature of wisdom, but um, more often than not, it falls on the side of wisdom is good. Wisdom will make, you know, life better. Um, and, it, and it beats being an idiot, pretty much. So that's where there's some overlap. There is some, um, some pretty significant kind of um, distance between these two books as well, uh, because Proverbs is very optimistic. So um, Proverbs likes to, uh, all the Proverbs are kind of built upon um, the understanding that um, the world is ordered and it's consistent um, and it's knowable. So you can look around and you can actually find out what the world is actually like. And, um, and as a result, it's predictable. So you can actually know, you know, um, how to act in, in every situation according to, you know, following the Proverbs and you'll get the outcome um, that the proverb says that you will. Um, and they're kind of used, can be used as a way of um, attaining the happy, a happy and successful life. If you follow this, you will receive that outcome. It's kind of like, um, you know, a formula of sorts. So it's very optimistic. Ecclesiastes is the opposite. So Proverbs is the kind of happy, bubbly, um, optimistic, cheerful friend. And, and Ecclesiastes is kind of like the moody, killjoy, like always just poking holes in the plan kind of thing, uh, kind of friend. And, and Ecclesiastes is... Um, here's all the things that Proverbs says about, you know, if you do this, you'll get that. And um, the wise will prosper and be rich and, and have a good life. And, and Ecclesiastes goes, yeah, but not always, not always. In fact, often it's pretty different to what you're describing Proverbs. Sometimes it's drastically different. Um, and, and so, the emphasis in Proverbs, uh, in Ecclesiastes is, is kind of quite different to Proverbs. Um, there are, it, it's coming from a point of view of saying, actually, there are limits to our understanding um, and to how much we can kind of look around and, and grasp what's going on. So in um, Ecclesiastes 3, verse 11, um, he says, no one can fathom what he has done from beginning to end. No one can fathom. So we can, we can get part of it, but we can't see everything that God's doing. Um, so that there are actually limits to our ability to, um, to see and understand. Um, and it really, it really kind of, it counsels against taking Proverbs like their promises. Like, so if Proverbs says one thing, you know, that if you do this, you'll get that outcome. It, it's a proverb that might work sometimes, but not always. It's not a, it's not a guarantee. Um, and I think that's where Proverbs falls down and the helpfulness that Ecclesiastes gives to us is that it's not always as, is not, it's not, it doesn't always work as smoothly as Proverbs might suggest. So the two books, they don't contradict each other, but they have different emphases and you've actually got to have them together in order to get the full picture. Does that make sense? Um, all right, we might keep moving. Here are three quick things um, that I'm just going to run through fairly fast. Um, thanks, Jeanette. Um, first thing is uh, it's important to note that um, there's actually two people writing this book. Um, so if you've got your Bible there, have, have open it up to the very first uh, verse, actually, and see in um, 1 verse 1, it begins... Um, the words of the teacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem. Right, so it's in third person. Um, and it actually doesn't get to first person until verse 12 of the first chapter. You can see, I, the teacher, was king over Israel in Jerusalem. So the first 11 verses are actually written not by the teacher who is giving this wisdom, but by someone else, a uh, second voice. Um, so there are two voices in this book. We hear from, well, I guess let's call him the narrator, um, who is kind of capturing the teaching of the teacher um, and kind of bookends um, the book with a comment. So he opens um, with an introduction. 
Um, and the narrator, then in verse chapter 12, if you want to flick to chapter 12, finishes things off. Um, in verse 9, it switches back to third person. Not only was the teacher wise, but he also imparted knowledge to the people. He pondered and searched out and set in order many proverbs. And then you can see, we, we know a little bit perhaps about who this narrator might be in, in verse 12. Be warned, my son, of anything in addition to them. So maybe it's a father um, addressing um, his son about, you know, here's, here's what the teacher has said, uh, or maybe it's more of just a kind of a term of endearment. Um, but it's important to note that there's those two, there's those two voices going on um, and, and the narrator kind of bookends the start and end. Uh, when it comes to structure, um, it's really hard to pinpoint um, like a logical movement through material uh, because the teacher comes back to things that he talks about again and again. And uh, quite common in the kind of um, the ancient Near East, the way that they would construct arguments um, would, would be actually circular. So it would, it would, it would, it would progress, but it would come back around um, rather than like, as soon as I've finished talking about this topic, I'm not going to come back to it again. I'm going to move on to the next one. So it's, it's really difficult actually to, just to construct a, a logical structure that makes much sense. Um, kind of, it swings between the teacher making an observation, um, a whole bunch of different observations, and then a whole bunch of different instructions, and then he comes back to some observations, and then back to some instructions, and the topics kind of mixed all together. And um, I, I saw an interesting commentator suggest that the the structure of the book actually mimics or reflects the kind of mess of life. Right, because one of the points of Ecclesiastes is that it's just not, it's not straightforward and it's not um, easy to work through, and um, and that's actually where you find yourself if you're trying to work out a structure. You kind of throw your hands up in the air in frustration, just like the teacher. That's interesting. The last point um, to say is just about the influence of uh, Genesis. Um, so it's pretty widely accepted that um, the first couple of chapters of Genesis really represent the single most important influence in the book. It's kind of like the foundation stone of um, everything that the teacher goes on to say. And, and really the two big things that it's pulling, that, that, is, that is the two big stones that the, uh, the teacher of Ecclesiastes is kind of resting all of what he says upon. Um, the first one is found in Genesis 1 to 2. Um, which establish God's sovereignty over creation and the, the order that exists in creation and uh, God's generosity, the giver of good gifts. Um, those are really important um, foundation stones that uh, the teacher builds upon. And the second really important foundation stone is in Genesis 3 um, and the fall of mankind and the introduction of all these limitations um, to our experience um, in life so that the curses that um, God passed down um, on Adam and Eve and the serpent because of their disobedience, right? So the relationship between um, each other, man and woman is severed, the relationship between God and man is severed and the relationship between mankind and creation is severed and it creates these limitations and tensions, and um, that is super key to uh, to what Ecclesiastes is getting at, and uh, essentially to the pessimism that um, that kind of undergirds a lot of uh, the tone in the book, um, and that really leads us um, that kind of the the um, the limitations and the fallenness and the uh, the hardship of life really leads us to the next point, um, which is really unpacking what's the most important word in the book, um, and it's the word hevel. I know it's got to be, but that's just Hebrew for you. Hevel is the way you say it. Um, and it occurs almost 40 times through the book. So it is super important. It's so important you can see it there. Um, and it was one of the verses I had you look at at the start, um, chapter 1, verse 2 where he says, meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher, utterly meaningless, everything is meaningless. So he says it four times in that the second verse 
of the book. Uh, and it's kind of like the theme um, statement or the, the kind of the key verse and, and it comes out again and again. Um, and the word there that the NIV translate as meaningless um, in the older, older translations, I think the ESV as well has got it as vanity. Um, and that's not a super helpful term vanity because we know vanity when we think when we hear vanity, we think kind of like proud, pride, arrogance, um, or maybe something that you would kind of sit in front of and do your hair. Um, so not, not super helpful. And that's not really at all what the teacher's talking about when he uses the word hevel. Um, meaningless is, is closer, uh, in terms of our understanding, but, um, doesn't quite get it either. Um, and it's a bit misleading actually. Um, the word comes from, um, comes is, is actually a picture. It's a, it's a metaphor. It's a, it's a, it's an image. Um, and it means kind of smoke or vapor or mist. Um, uh, which is really interesting, I think, for the, the teacher to use a, a picture image. Um, and the, the great thing about it is that, um, you can get a lot out of that image when you apply it in the way that he applies it, um, through the book. I wanted to get a, um, a kettle in here. Uh, if we were doing this live at St. Matt's tonight, I would have had like a boiling kettle in front of you all. So you could actually see the, um, you know, the, the vapor rising. And I actually tested it out uh, about half, uh, half an hour before we started it. It just, you couldn't really see it on camera. So you're going to have to imagine um, a boiling kettle right here with the kind of wisps of vapor rising out of it. Um, and it's helpful because the way that the teacher uses this word, Hevel, 40 times throughout the book, there's two big kind of ways in which he's applying it. The first one comes to time. So uh, if you have a if you think, try and picture this kettle that's here in front of us uh, with the, the smoke kind of, or the, 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 the steam kind of slowly wisping out of it. Um, as soon as it's out of the kettle, it, it vanishes, right? You see it for a moment and, and then it's gone. Um, and so at a bunch of points in the book that the teacher applies this kind of idea of the fleeting nature of, um, of life to creation you know it is hevel it is um fleeting it's temporary it's here one minute and then it's it's gone the next um and and that's one way that he uses it the most dominant way though is not when it comes to time but rather when it comes to meaning and when it comes to understanding and ability to look around and to um accurately capture what's going on, right? What we talked about wisdom, to accurately um, interpret the situation. Um, and when he uses, so, and so again, I'll apply the, the, the idea of, of the steam coming out of the kettle and you try to grasp the steam. And every time you kind of reach out for it, it kind of slips through your fingers and you, don't, you can't catch it, right? You, you can see it, it's, and, it and it's there, you know, it's not a, it's not a, it's not a mirage. It's not a, an illusion. It, there's actually something there, but it's really hard to grab hold of. Um, it's really hard to wrap your mind around. And he's saying that's what, that's what life's like. So it's mysterious. It's elusive. Meaning is, is, is futile. As soon as you think you have it, as soon as you think you've worked it out, you've kind of cracked the nut, something happens that just throws it all up in the air again. And, 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 understanding is no more um, so that's what he's talking about when he talks about um, meaningless meaningless he's not he's not saying that there's no meaning in life there's no reason for living he's just saying it's that life is is fleeting it's temporary it's here one minute gone the next and it's also just hard to grasp it's mysterious it doesn't mean that there's not meaning it just means that we are we find it difficult to find it um, and in fact, he would say it's it's quite impossible to find that meaning just by looking around at creation, by looking around um, under the sun, as we're going to look at in a sec. Um, and one of the big real thrusts of the book of Ecclesiastes hangs on this word hevel. And um, because he's really, he's really trying to teach those people who are reading um, his wisdom that 
we go looking for ultimate meaning, we go looking for purpose, we go looking for um, fulfillment, satisfaction, in an ultimate sense, at all this stuff around us, but it's temporary. And it also just doesn't do the job that we think it will. So the idea of Hevel, although it sounds very negative as, as we read it at the start, um, and then there is a kind of a negativity to it, it's actually only, um, bad news really for those people that are trying to hang ultimate meaning and purpose and fulfillment upon um, the things under the sun. Uh, and this is the other real big term that you kind of got to wrap your heads around. Um, the idea of under the sun, he says it 29 times through the book, uh, it kind of runs through the whole thing. And uh, it's a bit of a kind of catch all phrase that he uses to both describe a place, so like quite literally everything under the sun, as he understands it, is kind of like creation. Um, everything that is in creation, the things that we can see and experience and interact with um, via our senses. Um, and the other way that it, it kind of operates in the book is as, as a perspective, a way of seeing the world um, as just under the sun. So the, the different pursuits, um, the different pleasures, the different um, things that people look to in order to be fulfilled and to find meaning and um, to give a sense of who they are in the world. Um, when it's an under the sun perspective, um, you're, you're led to Hevel. That's the end of the road. That fleeting, futile attempt to kind of find meaning. Um, so really important those two terms um, and you'll see them again and again uh, as we work through the book um, because they're kind of the key the keys that help us unlock um, the book um, now just to remind you there's actually going to be a chance to ask questions uh, at the end i'm gonna yeah we'll get there um, <clears throat> There are three kind of recurring imperatives that come up again and again throughout the book as well. And um, I just want to spend a little bit of time. We're going to obviously unpack all of this as we work through the book together. Uh, and I, don't, I really don't want to steal the thunder of uh, all those people that will be preaching. Um, and yet um, there is a sense that um, if you're able to look beyond the under the sun perspective, what I call, that's a bit crude, over the sun, above the sun. If, you're, if, if that's, the, that, that's the perspective you have, these, this is where actually it leads you to. So if you're able to lift your gaze beyond um, the things that you can see and taste and touch and experience, uh, above the sun, there's actually uh, things that aren't hevel. So um, these, are, these three things, he, he doesn't identify as hevel, as meaningless. Um, uh, and he actually endorses them. So you've got revere your God is the first one. I'll just read if you want to flick to chapter 8, verse 12 in your Bibles. Here's one example of many. 8, verse 12 says, Although a wicked person who commits a hundred crimes may live a long time, I know that it will go better with those who fear God, who are reverent before him fear of the Lord uh, is a big theme in the book. And um, of course, when we're talking about fear, we're not talking about um, being terrified such that you want to run away, but rather it's a, it's a reverence and a respect that actually makes you, pulls you towards um, God rather than sends you fleeing. Um, so that's one of the things he calls you to do, to, to fear the Lord, to revere God. Um, as the one who was above the sun. Second one uh, is flick to uh, chapter five, verse 18. Um, and uh, this is a really key idea in the book um, because there's a lot of, there's a lot of looking like there's a lot of negativity or pessimism about what this world can provide under the sun, but there are some glimmers of hope. Um, and it's actually about your mindset. It's about not seeing, uh, the things that you do as things that are owed to you 
or things that you earn, but rather when good things come to you, to see them as good gifts from God. And so we have an example here in um, chapter 5, verse 18, uh, where he says, This is what I have observed to be good, that it is appropriate for a person to eat, to drink, and to find satisfaction in their toilsome labor under the sun during the few days of life God has given them, for this is their lot. Moreover, when God gives someone wealth and possessions and the ability to enjoy them, to accept their lot and be happy in their toil, this is a gift of God. So accept the gift is what he says and uh, see life as a gift um, from God and enjoy it and enjoy it. The last imperative is the presence of judgment. Um, and just to remember that all things will come under God's judgment, which is what he says in three verse 17. I said to myself, God will bring into judgment, both the righteous and the wicked for there will be a time for every activity time to judge every deed um, and so everything matters um, people um, accuse the book of ecclesiastes of kind of tearing the meaning and the purpose out of life you know meaningless meaningless uh, etc and you can see why they come to that conclusion but remember he's not saying that it's meaningless there is meaning it's just hard to grasp and actually verses like that tell us Far from it being meaningless, it's everything is meaningful because God will bring into judgment every activity, every deed. Um, so it's, it's actually on the flip side of what often people think about Ecclesiastes, about not caring about, you know, what happens on earth because it's all going to pass away and blah, 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 blah. There's a lot of points where he's talking about judgment, um, as you can see there, and uh, that, that's, that's a factor at play. Uh, I guess we now just move as we kind of come to a come to the end. Um, the question, I guess, is why are we studying this book? Like, um, what does it have to say for us today? Why is it still worth us looking at and thinking about? Um, there's a bunch of reasons, I reckon. Um, firstly, it asks questions that we that people still ask today, right? So it's timeless in that sense. Um, it's a very relevant, very current um, book in that sense. It, 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 it's, searching in this, it's searching for meaning in the same way that, that we still search for meaning. And it's critiquing um, the attempt to make ultimate meaning out of things like wealth and status and work and pleasure and our legacy. All the things that people today, including us, still try to... Um, place our ultimate worth and meaning upon and it's crazy as you if you haven't if you're not super familiar with the book as you read it it's very sharp even for us today in the way that it just critiques the temptation of our hearts to go after those things and uh, the illusion that we have of being able to control our lives um, by kind of getting all our ducks lined up in a row and um, making lots of money or being a real success at work or building a massive family, you know, that will outlive you, blah, 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 blah. Like that's timeless, isn't it? And, um, and so that you can see the questions that I've, I've placed on the screen here are questions we still ask, right? What is life about? How do I make the most of the time that I have? Time is a massive theme throughout the book of Ecclesiastes. Um, and you have to think about like these days, it's even more, we're even more obsessed with time and getting the most out of time and we're busy and we're hurrying and, um, and the teacher just looks at that and kind of scoffs and says, <laughs> like, you're, you're smashing yourself, but like, what are you actually accomplishing? And like, how relevant a rebuke is that for us? <laughs> just to go all this, blood, sweat, and tears you're pouring into existence, what is it actually accomplishing? And is it actually accomplishing what you want it to or what you think it is? Um, like super relevant, these questions. Where does, where does my fulfillment come from? Why do the things that I look to for fulfillment not scratch the itch? Um, I mean, that's a, that's a question that our society is crying out to find the answers to and looking in every which way, right? And that's what the teacher is cracking into. That's what he's laying out on the table and saying, what are we going to do with this? Super relevant. Um, and the other reason I reckon it, 
it's not just timeless, but I think it's actually very timely for us uh, in the situation that we're in. Um, we did actually didn't decide to do this series as a result of the current situation we find ourselves in, you know, COVID-19. Um, but I honestly can't think of a better time than right now to be cracking into this book, precisely because normally when you look at the book of Ecclesiastes, um, for most people, you know, especially here in Manly, life's pretty good. Um, things are going pretty well. Um, there's most people are comfortable and settled and feel like they're in control of life. And then here comes, um, you know, Debbie Downer, Ecclesiastes, the gloomy, moody, um, killjoy going, ah, but life's not really like that. It can be hard to listen to the book of Ecclesiastes when life is good, when life feels like it's in control, when, um, when you're healthy, wealthy, and wise, it can be hard to hear these things until you hit a point where the goodness of life is suddenly not guaranteed, <laughs> when there's a glitch, when your plans kind of fall apart, when all the expectations that you had about how life was going to be, when it's not working out that way. And um, that's everyone right now like isn't it like everyone is in that situation right now um because our plans have been completely thrown up in the air um because this virus has shown has has shown us the reality that we're not actually as much in control as we thought we were um and um you know one of the things that that the teacher will talk about again and again is just how the same fate faces those who have lots of money versus those who don't have much money. The same fate faces those who are wise versus those who are foolish. Um, you know, talking about death, everyone dies. Um, and, and there's this kind of equality. Um, that's the case with the virus, you know, like it, 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 it's getting people that are healthy and it's getting people that are sick. Uh, it's getting the young and it's getting the old. Um, so there's a sense, there's a sense in which, the current situation we're in makes all of us in a very unique situation actually willing and, and ready to hear these words from the teacher because the reality that he's talking about, that we are not as in control as we thought, that um, there is the kind of spectre of death that hangs over and, and, and it's coming for all of us, that's a reality those are truths that we're living in at the moment. And um, in a way that obviously we haven't, um, certainly not in, in my lifetime and probably in everyone's lifetime, not a situation which en masse we're all in this position to kind of hear from the teacher. And we're all sitting there going, yeah, I absolutely get what he's talking about because that's our reality right now. So I'm really excited by the fact that we're looking at this book. Um, and I, I totally think that it's God's timing because we were supposed to be doing this book at the end of last year uh, and we've always had it um, locked in for term two. And as it would happen, I think it's perfect. Last thing, before we finish up. It's just a question of um, how does this fit with the New Testament? How does this fit with Jesus? Um, it, it does, one of the typical problems with the or the difficulties with wisdom literature is it doesn't talk about the covenants it doesn't talk about god's you know coming in to save israel and his plans of a messiah and all of that sort of thing it's it's um as i said it's resting on the foundation of genesis um the really important foundation of genesis but it doesn't doesn't really engage with um salvation history side of israel's history and so the connection of jesus is a little bit um, less clear, but is definitely there. And so I just want to say a few things about this connection. Um, we often talk about Jesus as the kind of prophet, priest, and king. Um, and really, I reckon we could add um, wise teacher into that as, as a kind of fourth figure that Jesus um, fulfills in his coming. Um, in 1 Corinthians chapter 124, for instance, Paul does describe Jesus as not only the power of God, but the wisdom of God. Um, and if you're familiar with Jesus's life and ministry, you know, the guy basically taught in parables all the time. The parables are the tool of the wisdom teacher. 
he spoke, Jesus spoke in parables and proverbs and he taught. Um, and there's so a large, massive part of his ministry is actually fulfilling the role of um, Israel's wise teachers. Um, and I think that's important to remember. I just want to quickly read for us. I know we're running out of time, but um, Matthew chapter 7, verses 24 to 27. Um, you can flick there with me you'd like um this this was a like a revelation for me um in just working through this when i saw it i was like my goodness yeah it was just one of those moments i want to share it with you but um this will be very familiar to those of you that are familiar with jesus parables um it's the parable of the wise and foolish builder jesus says therefore everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. And it was just that idea that in Jesus' parable, it's like sand is Hevel. Sand is, is his image of that elusive, um, futile, temporary, kind of slips through your fingers kind of thing. It makes a terrible foundation for a building precisely because it's that kind of, it has that kind of nature about it, right? And it's a, like Jesus is talking about Hevel here and he's saying those of you who build your house on Hevel, on the sand, on the things of this world that cannot bear the weight of our expectations and our hopes and our self-worth, when you do that, it will crash. And there is only one foundation upon which to build your house, to build your life upon. And that is, as he says there in verse 24, who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice. That's wisdom. And it's rooted in Jesus's words, hearing and obeying Jesus's words. Um, and when I saw that, I was like, gosh, I've, that's, that's exactly what Ecclesiastes is talking about. The only place that we find the security and the control and the fulfillment and the satisfaction that we're looking for, the true meaning in life is not actually under the sun. It's above it. It's with God, with his word, uh, and ultimately with his son, with what he's come to do. Um, and we don't have time to, to, to look at those last two points um, because it's just about to click over to nine o'clock. But uh, in Romans 8, um, it really captures the frustration that um, Ecclesiastes is dealing with, this kind of um, creation out of order because of the fallenness of humanity. And um, it's, it's about as close a picture in, like a, 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 as close as we get to a picture of Ecclesiastes, that kind of situation um, in all of the New Testament. Um, you can take a look at it in your own time if you want. Um, but the real difference in, in the way that Paul describes it is that um, he doesn't just leave it with creation, but he, um, Jesus actually, and the redemption that Jesus brings um, completely reverses the Hevel that we find ourselves in. And Jesus actually enters into the Hevel, the, um, the meaninglessness, the um, mysterious, um, the elusive and he actually makes sense of it and he actually brings us through it um which is stunning but you, you pick that up in in romans 8 and and when when ecclesiastes is ringing in your in your ears as you read romans 8 it, it all kind of um falls into place um and and so i, I will end on just kind of that there is hope in ecclesiastes because because there is that above the sun perspective kind of scattered throughout that he keeps drawing us back to and that the the narrator at the end really does a great job of kind of capturing um that perspective fear god um receive 
his goodness, his gifts, and uh, remember that there is judgment, so everything matters. There is hope, and yet in, in the New Testament, we see kind of flesh put onto that hope um, with the coming of Jesus um, and the light of the gospel that kind of dispels the mist of Havel. Um, and though we still experience the, um, the groans and the frustration of this creation, um, and, and we're still foolish enough to look for it and hang our ultimate meaning upon it, that's precisely why the book of Ecclesiastes still makes sense for us to read, um, even though it's found its fulfillment in um, the true wisdom teacher, Israel's true wisdom teacher. Um, the stuff it cracks into is, is so relevant still for us today. Uh, so I hope you enjoy um, our term spent in this ancient book. Um, there's so much stuff to, uh, for us to unpack, and this is really just scratched the surface. Hopefully, my aim was to whet your appetite, to get you excited, and to also just put some of those really important building blocks in place because um, it can be a little slippery as you try to walk through this book. Thank you for joining us. I'm now going to take a few questions. Um, and if you'd like to bow out at this point, feel free. If you'd like to stick around and see where we get to with some of these questions, feel free to do that as well. Okay, Fred, question about the word fear means to be in awe or is it actual fear? Great question. Um, I, th I think there is supposed to be a sense of like a little bit of trepidation and uh, the reason why we respect and the reason why we are in awe of God is because because um, he is so big and powerful and um, dangerous, uh, but he's a good God and he, um, he doesn't change and so he's not unpredictable um, and he's obviously... Um, given us lots of good things, um, many good blessings, uh, most of all of which uh, his son. So we can actually trust him. And because we can trust him, even though he is big and powerful and dangerous, um, we can trust him and we can um, go to him and be with him. And, and it's, it's in that whole kind of picture that, that the word fear kind of catches it all up. Um, Yep. So it's not terror, as I said, it's not a terror that sends us away, but it's a kind of a reverence and a respect um, of God's power and his majesty and his glory that actually draws us to him um, rather than sends us running. Okay. Um, did Jesus use the word Hevel? Not that I'm aware of. Um, as I said, I think he captures that idea um, in that parable. But as, I'm, as far as I'm aware, I mean, he didn't speak. He spoke in Aramaic um, and it comes to us in Greek. Um, I'm not exactly sure how the word translates into Greek, but um, nothing in what I've read has suggested that he did use that word. Um, that could be wrong, though. Yeah, Nathan, I just did a quick look on uh, Bible Gateway and there's only two times that we see the word, the, the English word meaningless, um, in the New Testament, which is in the pastoral epistles. So I, I think you're right. Um, it's more the concept which might be transferred across rather than the word Havel itself. Yep. Yeah. Um, yeah. So everyone can see, if you can't see the question, it's uh, you mentioned there were two voices in the book. Some have described the book as almost schizophrenic, a rejoicing voice and a depressed voice. How would you reconcile this? So the two voices I was referring to were actually two different people. Um, and so you've got the teacher who makes up the, the, the main part of the book and then you've got the um, author or the narrator who's kind of collected it together or who is presenting it to someone. So they're the two voices. I think what you're referring to is just the kind of the bouncing back and forth, like one moment it's enjoy life, the next one, it's the next moment it's like, you know, I hate my life, which he actually does say I hate my life. It's like a moody teenager. Um, and... Yeah, it's interesting. It's super interesting. I I wouldn't call it schizophrenic, but I would call it um, real, you know? Like one of the things that I reckon is great about the book is that it, um, in a similar kind of way to, say, some of the, um, the Psalms of Lament that um, where you just see people pouring out their anguish and you can't look at it, 
you know, you're sitting here in, um, you know, your million dollar house and, you know, next to the beach, you go, oh, that, that's so dramatic. You know, why would you, why would you speak like that kind of thing? I think it's a little bit like that in, in that he's really tapping into um, the highs and lows of life. Um, and the, the fact that it swings back and forth, I think is pretty reflective of what life is like. Um, normally, and, and it actually captures that reality, I think, even in the way that he expresses himself, um, kind of moving back and forth between the two. Um, as I said, I think it's hard to, I don't think he's just telling like one narrative story. Like I think it's things that have been collected together rather than one long discourse. Um, I think that's kind of obvious in the way that it's put together and that's why the structure is kind of all over the place. But um, so that may also kind of be part of the confusion as to why it's kind of a bit jumpy all over the place. Uh, but good question. Um, which band from the 60s? Um, that was the Birds, I think. Um, I think it was Turn, Turn, Turn. I'm not sure what I can use these points for, but um, thanks, Paul, for playing. Um, why is the teacher unaware of the ultimate teacher to come, Jesus, compared to the other Old Testament prophets who seem to know that Jesus was to come in some way? Um, I don't know. I mean, he's not a prophet, um, so that could be part of it. Um, obviously, the prophets received the word of God, you know, thus says the Lord. It's quite different to what... Um, the teacher is doing here with the teacher is looking around and thinking and reflecting um, on creation. So I think the purpose is, is, is quite different to what the teacher is presenting um, as to why he doesn't know about the Messiah. Like uh, that word's not used again, like it's, it's not really in fitting with the style. Um, so the wisdom literature um, doesn't engage with Israel's salvation history. Um, explicitly and so um, you wouldn't expect that that there would be kind of talk that 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 kind of covenantal language and messianic language would kind of be part of it um, yeah but that's a good question um, Leah Sharm is asking about the, um, the mystery and the unknowable realities of God while others seem driven to find answers and understanding. Um, I mean, the guy's a wisdom teacher. So like he's, he's big on wisdom and he's big on thinking and understanding and try to, uh, trying to understand the world. So it's, it's not saying that we should just kind of switch our brains off or stop trying to think reflectively or, um, or anything like that. But it is very critical of a kind of simplistic, um, a simplistic way of looking at the world um, and particularly critiquing um, the wisdom of Proverbs um, and those who would misuse the wisdom of Proverbs to say, because Proverbs says this, therefore I'm entitled to X, Y, and Z, or because my neighbor is acting foolishly, then he should be, you know, struck by lightning or whatever. Um, and it's, it's critiquing that, um, that kind of fixed way of thinking. Um, I think what it really is doing is a similar thing to what Job does, um, which is to say, yes, you can understand a lot about the world, but you can't understand it all. And you, you actually need to, um, rather than going round and round trying to understand what you can't understand, is you actually need to be um, content to um, hold on to God. So humility, dependence, um, listening to God's word and, and actually just trusting it. So I don't think it throws out wisdom and, and understanding and the yearning that we have um, to understand. There's a great, it says at the very start in uh, chapter three, this is still answering Leah's question, by the way. Um, three verse 11, um, he has made everything beautiful in its time. He's also set eternity in the human heart um, yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. So there is a yearning that we have to understand and to know, um, and yet it's going to be frustrated. So there is a reality that I think we have to accept, that we're not going to have answers to everything. And Job and Ecclesiastes say, duh, and that's actually okay. And um, the quicker you embrace that reality, um, 
that we can't understand everything, the better. Um, aren't we exactly like those people in Ecclesiastes, which means that the book is exactly for us, people and manly living in wealth? Um, Martin Jones, precisely. We are like those people in Ecclesiastes, though we are um, after Jesus. So, um, and I guess that's the one caveat I would put on, on talking about the connection of Ecclesiastes to us. We, we have the full revelation now. Um, so Ecclesiastes is great. It's got great wisdom and it's got great, it pushes us in great directions, but um, it's not the last word when it comes to wisdom. It's not, um, it's not the end. So um, we want to be, make sure that we also hear what um, Jesus, the, the true teacher, wise teacher um, also contributes to the conversation because as I said, he kind of completes and fills in some of those holes that the teacher um, in Ecclesiastes is kind of frustrated by. Some of those are actually filled in by Jesus um, and, and through the New Testament, which is great. But I think what you're saying is that we're quite similar in the way that we look to the things around us for meaning and for purpose. Um, and in, to that, I would say, amen, amen. Um, who was he actually addressing? So we're not told. Um, as I said, the, the narrator seems to be collecting the teacher's sayings together to give to someone. Um, he addresses my son. So maybe it's a father talking to a son um, or maybe it's just, um, you know, the people of Israel, those who are interested in these sorts of pursuits um, who would have gathered together to hear the teacher speak. Um, we're not told so, um, but that, that was the main function of the, the, the wisdom teachers is that um, they would kind of be in the marketplace pontificating and reflecting and pointing things out and people would come and kind of listen and gain the wisdom of their, their thinking and their energy. Um, thanks, Peggy. Is the preacher Solomon? Um, Great question. I wondered whether someone was going to bring that up. Um, that's often like the first thing that people talk about when they talk about the book of Ecclesiastes. Um, I decided not to mainly because um, I think ultimately it doesn't, there's nothing that really hangs on it being him necessarily. Um, like if it is him, great. If it's not him, it actually doesn't change the meaning. Traditionally, it's been thought of to have been written by Solomon. Um, there's a couple reasons for that. We hear in um, verse 1, he's introduced to us by the narrator as the, a son of David, king in Jerusalem. So Solomon was David's son, so it could be him. Um, we also hear in um, verse 13 of chapter 1, he says, I applied my mind to study and to explore by wisdom all that is done under the heavens. Um, that sounds like kind of something that Solomon is famous for doing, going and, you know, being really wise. Uh, and then in chapter two, we also get great projects that this teacher did. And then he kind of lists out, you know, all the, the slaves that he amassed and the gold that he collected and the buildings and blah, 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 blah. And he kind of like talks about how amazing um, his achievements were. And we know that under Solomon, that was kind of like the apex of Israel's history, right? They were like at the, the very top of the mountain, um, as glorious as Israel ever was, was under Solomon. And so it seems like that's kind of what it's describing. Um, but there are some problems with, with, with concluding that it's Solomon. The first being that it actually doesn't say it's Solomon. It just calls him the teacher. Um, and that is strange to not name him, I think, um, particularly because in some of the other wisdom books, like Song of Songs and Proverbs, he actually is named. So that there's no problem in naming him, but it's, he's not named in Ecclesiastes. Um, and so if it was him, that would be strange, I think, um, to not name him. Um, and there's a couple of other things like um, we get the sense that this teacher's old. Like, so he says things like, I've seen all the things done under the sun. When I'd surveyed all that my hands had done, there's this kind of like sense of I've come to the end of my life and... And that, that's really the, that's why he has weight, right, in what he's saying, because he's seen everything and experienced everything and accomplished everything there is to accomplish, etc. So it seems like he's an old dude. Problem is, of course, that Solomon, when he was an old dude, was a really bad dude. And um, he, you know, 
went away from God and um, he, he essentially was, you know, he, he followed idols and stuff. And, and that's, so that's not really the picture we get from this teacher. Um, like he, he endorses fearing God. He calls on, you know, he talks about God's coming judgment. So it doesn't really gel with an old Solomon. Um, and the last thing is that he just says weird stuff like in verse 16 of chapter one, he says, I have increased in wisdom more than anyone who has ruled over Jerusalem before me. <laughs> and it's like, hang on, he's just talking about David because <laughs> David's the only king to rule in Jerusalem before him. Um, and so <laughs> if it is Solomon, like it, it's a kind of a funny thing for him to say. Um, so that there's kind of, there's evidence for and against. Um, I think the fact that it doesn't call him Solomon means that we actually can't say that it, that it was him. You have to work out what's going on then. Is someone trying to, you know, pull the wool over our eyes? Um, I'd say no. I'd say if it's not Solomon, um, what it's actually trying to do is evoke, invoke, sorry, the royal wisdom tradition, um, which really hangs as like, you know, Solomon's like the centerpiece of Israel's wisdom tradition, like he was the dude. Um, and so they're kind of trying to connect into that rich vein of tradition um, by alluding to kind of Solomon, a Solomon type figure without actually saying this is Solomon. Um, and so it's kind of a rhetorical device. Um, it's not trying to be deceptive or to trick or to, um, uh, you know, if it was, it would actually say this is Solomon and it was some other dude named Harry or whatever that wrote it. Um, but it's being mysterious precisely because I think it's just trying to tap into Solomon type of wisdom, a Solomon type figure um, in order to make the points that are made. Um, so all that's to say, we don't know, um, but it doesn't really matter. Um, but there's, there's been lots of ink spilled over that question. So I can understand why you've asked it. If we don't know how that Solomon wrote it, how is it received into the canon? Um, that's a good question. Um, as I said, I think, actually, I probably, I don't know enough, I reckon, about how it was canonised to, I think I'd, like the, the, the canonization of the Old Testament is um, complicated, um, 70, BC, you know, they got together and um, and kind of pulled together what had traditionally, what they'd held on to for, you know, thousands of years. Um, and so Ecclesiastes was a part of that. Um, and like, as I said, I think people suspected that it was written by Solomon, but it doesn't explicitly say that it was. Um, so I'm not sure how much they hung the authority of Solomon upon it as the reason why it was given canon, I would say it would had more to do with the fact that it was in keeping with, um, with the other wisdom literature. Like it's very similar. It's conclusions are very similar to Job. Um, so it kind of fits. It doesn't rub against, against them. Um, but it is a, it is a complicated question and I don't know enough about that the specifics of Ecclesiastes in terms of its canonization to speak more on it, but I'm sure there's stuff out there. You can find Aaron Smith. Um, uh, right. Ali's good question. Um, Ecclesiastes 7.16. I did say that I hoped we'd be able to answer all of the questions that came from that first foray into the difficult passages, but obviously I didn't cover that one. Um, so, when it comes to the difficult questions, where's my sheet gone? The, the passages we looked at. Um, if you look at the context of that one in particular, what he is saying is that ex extremes are difficult. The extremes will lead you down the wrong path. So you don't want to be too far down one way, and that includes being over-righteous or over-wise. Um, so it fits into a broader point that he's making about extremes. I guess the question is, how is, how is being over-righteous a bad thing? Um, and I guess I would suggest that um, it perhaps fits into um, the folly of misusing proverbs in that if you think you can use... Um, a, this kind of simple formula in order to get a particular outcome. Um, 
he wants to say, no, that's not the case. And so maybe those people who use their righteousness uh, almost as if therefore God needs to, you know, therefore I need to have a particular life or get a particular outcome. Um, that's actually folly. Um, and so over-righteous, um, to be over-righteous, I guess, is to pursue it in such a way that um, you know, it's not out of trust and dependence for God or whatever, but it's actually out of a desire to try to control and a desire to try to receive a particular outcome, um, which I don't know, you might liken to kind of a works-based salvation kind of thing. Um, and, and, and really what he's trying to say is those people that pursue stuff so intently actually miss out on the small things in life that you can actually enjoy. That's the point he's trying to make is that, um, there is enjoyment and pleasure and, um, happiness to be found in life. It's small, but it's there and it's to be received gratefully. But those people who are so intent on following righteousness or so intent on being wise or whatever might actually miss that because, um, because they're over-righteous or they're over-wise. I think it, so it fits into that kind of sphere of, um, of what he's talking about. Um, but, yeah, it's certainly a strange thing to say, especially to our ears, how can you be over-righteous? But I think in the argument of the book, um, and particularly that section you have to read, read the context of it i think it makes a bit more sense just that kind of the extremes that pull us in particular directions that then actually lead us to miss out on enjoying the good gifts and receiving the good gifts that god's given to us thanks for joining us um god bless and uh we'll see you on online on sunday for our very first installment um should be good times